Welcome to this American Nurse Journal panel presentation, Tragedy in Tennessee, Could This Happen to You? I'm Lily Julinas, your webinar moderator and editor-in-chief of American Nurse Journal. I'm also assistant professor and patient safety section director at the UNT Health Science Center in Fort Worth, Texas. Let me begin by saying we lament the tragic death of patient Charlene Murphy at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in late 2017 after a medical error. And we extend our sympathies to the family who suffered this loss. We also recognize the second victim in this case, Redonda Vaught. The nursing community was shocked and saddened with her conviction for criminally negligent homicide and abuse of an impaired adult. Nurses are at the sharp end of errors, the point where errors reach the patient and therefore are vulnerable to blame. How can caregivers at the sharp end and the patients and their care be better protected from harm? And that's the focus of our discussion today. Before we begin, Here are some important facts for you to know, some of the logistics of this particular program. If you wanna ask us a question, please use the Ask Question panel to submit your questions, or if you're watching us on a mobile device, choose the question bubble icon. This webinar is being recorded and will be available on the American Nurse Journal website for on-demand viewing. Look for an email from us with that link. Supporting documents will be referenced during this webinar by our speakers, and you can download them from the related content panel. And if you are viewing us on a mobile device, choose the paperclip icon. We have an expert panel that is going to be uh, talking with us today about this very important topic. So let me introduce you to them now if you'd like to see their full biography just press the arrow beneath their names and the accordion will open for you to see their full bio. Joining us today is Dr. Bryn Esplin. She is assistant professor of medical education at the Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine at the University of North Texas Health Science Center. Patricia McGaffigan is vice president at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and she's also president of the certification board for professionals in patient safety. Dr. Sharon O'Neill is clinical associate professor at the NYU Myers College of Nursing. And Dr. Roy Simpson, who's clinical professor and assistant dean for technology management at the Neil Hodgkin Woodruff School of Nursing at Emory University. To begin, let's talk about the objectives that we hope to accomplish today, putting together this webinar for you. First, describing the elements of a culture of patient safety and a just culture. We'll discuss immediate, short, and long-term impacts of serious adverse events on patients, families, and members of the care team and the organizations they work in. And we'll identify system solutions to support the way humans work and minimize the opportunity for error. To set the stage, I'd like to go through a few of the facts of the timeline and the events that occurred in this particular case that we'll be discussing. These are only highlights, they're not complete. 
will begin with October 2015, when Redonda Vaught, a licensed registered nurse, began working at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, the largest hospital in Nashville and one of the nation's most respected hospitals. Charlene Murphy, 75, a longtime resident of a Nashville suburb, checked in to Vanderbilt on December 24, 2017, with a subdural hematoma, meaning bleeding in her brain. On December the 26th, Murphy's condition improved and she was almost ready to leave the hospital. But during a final scan in the hospital's radiology department, she was accidentally given a dose of Ecuronium, a powerful, paralyzing medication. The drug leaves her brain dead and Vaught allegedly admits to hospital staff that she's responsible for the medication error. December 27th, 2017, Murphy's family gathers at Vanderbilt to say goodbye. She dies about 1 a.m. after being disconnected from a ventilator. And later that day, two Vanderbilt neurologists report Murphy's death to the Davidson County Medical Examiner without mentioning the medication error or the vecaronium. Murphy's death is attributed to bleeding in her brain and deemed natural. Based on information provided by Vanderbilt, the medical examiner does not independently investigate her death. January 2018, the error is not reported to state or federal officials, which is required by law, or to the Joint Commission, an accrediting agency that recommends but does not require reporting of errors. Vaught is fired by Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Fast forward to October 23, 2018, the Tennessee Department of Health, which is responsible for licensing and investigating medical professionals, decides not to pursue disciplinary action against Vaught. Late November 2018, the circumstances of the fatal medication error become public for the first time. February 4th, 2019, Vaught is arrested on a criminal indictment for her alleged role in Murphy's death. She is charged with reckless homicide and impaired adult abuse. February 2019, Vaught makes her first appearance in court in her criminal case and enters a not guilty plea to all charges. September 27th, 2019, the Tennessee Department of Health reverses its prior decision not to pursue professional discipline against Vaught and charge her with three infractions before the Tennessee Board of Nursing, unprofessional conduct, abandoning or neglecting a patient that required care, and failing to maintain an accurate patient record. On May 20 and 21, 2020, Vaught's professional discipline hearing is scheduled at the quarterly meeting of the Tennessee Board of Nursing. July 13, 2020, Vaught's criminal trial is scheduled to begin. In the spring of 2020, we all know what happened. The corona pandemic hit us, and that delayed Vaught's professional discipline hearing and her criminal trial. July 22, 2021, Vaught's medical discipline begins. July 23, the Tennessee Board of Nursing revoked her nursing license. March 21st, Vaught's criminal trial begins with jury selection. March 25, 2022, the trial ended as the jury finds Vaught guilty of criminally negligent homicide and abuse of an impaired adult. So yes, Rhonda Vaught was found guilty of criminally negligent homicide stemming from the death of a patient. And on May 13, 2022, she was sentenced to three years of supervised probation. So with that background, let's start our discussion by describing elements of a culture of patient safety and a just culture. And we wanna make sure 
that you all know what we're using as definitions of uh, patient safety for purposes of this webinar. Patient safety is making care continually safer by reducing harm and preventable mortality. A culture of patient safety is an atmosphere of mutual trust in which all staff members can talk freely about safety problems and how to solve them without fear of blame or punishment. A culture of safety includes psychological safety, active leadership, transparency, and fairness. A just culture. The focus is on addressing systems and those issues that contribute to errors and harm. And while clinicians in the workforce are held accountable for actively disregarding protocols and procedures, the reporting of errors, lapses, near misses, and adverse events is encouraged. So in setting the stage here, uh, Patricia, would you add to what we need to know about why it's so important to understand these definitions? Sure, thank you, Lily, and, and I'd like to extend my uh, sympathies to the f uh, family of Ms. Charlene Murphy as well. Um, and, and I'll also note that in the timeline that you heard, you heard a lot of details about what happened over multiple years within the case. And as part of our discussion today, we'll be bringing up some more details about the actual um, details around the event itself, uh, where the medication act error actually occurred. But to get uh, grounded on these um, definitions, I'll note that what you shared, Lily, are widely accepted definitions of safety. We commonly think of safety as the absence of harm, which by the way, in our evolving definition of safety includes not only physical harm, but psychological and emotional harm. And I think we make care continually safer, not only by addressing what goes wrong, but also by shifting our thinking uh, to this notion of learning from and reinforcing the resiliency of systems and practices uh, by applying um, what we know about what goes right and how that goes right. So you'll hear us today talk about safety uh, requiring the intentional and proactive uh, leadership and design of systems that embrace and operationalize their values um, that include psychological safety and just culture. And we'll also be talking about professional accountability of teams and individuals because the balancing act of those two that are in play, particularly in this highly complex uh, system of healthcare with ever-changing conditions in which we work, means that safety is actually a very dynamic property of the system. It means we can never say we are safe. Uh, it is a constant work in progress for us to aim for safe, reliable, effective, and equitable care and caring, and it requires habitual and constant focus. And I know, Lily, that um, my colleagues on the call will have more to say about a fair and just culture, so let me uh, only reinforce something that uh, Dr. Lucian Leap, who is the parent of the modern patient safety movement so often states that one of the reasons why we have not been able to make progress in safety is that we continue to punish people for making mistakes. Thank you. Thank you, Patricia. Another important definition for us to understand to gain context is what exactly is the U.S. criminal justice system and how is it relevant to this particular case? So Dr. Esplin, would you help us understand the criminal justice system. Well, I will definitely try. Uh, thank you so much for letting me be here. And again, I want to extend my sympathies to Ms. Murphy's family um, as well. So as background, when we think about the criminal justice system, I want to highlight the system 
uh, aspect of this particular organization. So what is this? It's an organization that exists to enforce a legal code, but there are three branches. So we have the police, the courts, and the correction system. And when we think about all of the things and the factors, and especially the timeline in this case, the police are able to make an arrest based on reasonable suspicion or probable cause that a uh, uh, crime was committed. And then it's the prosecutor who has unusual discretion in cases. So a prosecutor can decide what, who to charge and with what. So, you know, after this particular act happened, this medication error, there were years. Um, and then the prosecutor within their discretion decided to bring this case and decided to bring these charges. So we have criminally negligent homicide, we have uh, abuse of a, an el elderly person, and we have those that are decided sort of by the prosecutor themselves. And then within those constraints, we have the jury. And the jury is made up of our peers, let's say, so someone who may not have uh, medical training or understand the nuances. And so they rely on expert witnesses and they can only make decisions based on what is presented to them. And then they're further constrained by the jury instructions. And so there's some systems aspects there, especially. And then when we think about sentencing, that is within the judge's purview. Um, and so there are many parts made up of people and choices, some of which uh, may be political, especially when you're talking about the discretion of who to charge, when, and with what. Thank you. Turn it over. And before, before we leave, um, definitions and the timeline. I want to make sure we're grounded in exactly what might be missing. As you know, in the press, there's been quite a bit about this case. It, it ranges over five years. But Dr. O'Neill, you're a nurse practitioner. Uh, you're a former president of the Maryland Board of Nursing. Uh, you are grounded in medical malpractice as an attorney. Can you help us what's missing from this timeline or these definitions and how did this case get to the DA to begin with? Can you help us with that? Sure, and I'd like to extend my uh, sympathy to the family and also uh, to uh, Ms. Walt. Uh, in this case, uh, the case could have gotten to the uh, a state's attorney uh, through different mechanisms. First, uh, she was brought in front of the, the board uh, previously, and there was an investigation, but please understand that investigation was handled by the board, probably not by the uh, investigative body, which ultimately looked at the case. I think what triggered this going to the uh, state's attorney was that there was a uh, complaint filed with uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, which automatically triggered a state investigation of the issue because the patient was at, at a hospital that was uh, certified by Medicare and Medicaid, but also the patient was also a Medicare recipient, which kind of changed uh, what might be looked at. So ultimately, as a result of that, um, it could have led to uh, an investigation by the state uh, commission that actually looks on uh, abuse of, a, of the elderly, which in this case, it looks it appears that that's one of the things that did trigger it. And then also the state uh, health department itself took a uh, look at the case, which may have sent it back to the Board of Nursing is why the Board of Nursing got involved in the case. Important to know, thank you. Let's move to discussing the 
Second objective, there were many immediate impacts, but there are short and long-term impacts of serious adverse events, which we know affecting patients, families, the entire care team, and the organizations in which they practice. So I'd like to start with Patricia uh, to discuss impacts. You know, Patricia, IHI is a worldwide recognized leader in quality and safety improvement. What was IHI's reaction to this case? Right. Thank you uh, for that question. And uh, we have some materials that are included in the folder of resources for this session. So I want to just let you know that we won't have time to go through everything, and those will be great reference points for you. One of the things that I'd like to point out um, relates to a letter that IHI and our members of the Lucian Leap Institute sent to the judge. Um, after the verdict and prior to the sentencing, uh, we noted that um, Ms. Vaught's criminal conviction had already had a chilling effect on the patient safety movement and healthcare providers around the country and quite frankly, around the world. Uh, we emphasized that we knew what we knew to be true, that most medical errors uh, and human errors actually result from some of the defects in systems that are very, very real parts of our world. And that preventing medical errors therefore requires addressing those systems and the fault lines within those systems. Uh, we noted that we can't get to safer care by uh, punitive actions or expecting providers to be perfect um, or by telling them to try harder um, and placing a preponderance of burden on individuals because uh, the, these two individual performance and um, system issues are highly interdependent. Uh, we focused on two primary areas of concern and that's how we started out the conversation. We focused on the risk to patients and the public if cultures of fear and blame were to become commonplace in healthcare. Um, and that if we blame colleagues um, in the uh, presence of unintentional harm uh, for system failures uh, that are not addressed, um, particularly if that it can advance to criminal conviction and possibly even imprisonment, that we expect that errors will be um, swept underground. Uh, they'll be hidden and underreported, and we know that that's already the case. We've worked really hard in healthcare and in safety to be able to enhance reporting and create cultures where fear of punishment is no longer in place. The second area of commentary relates to the impact on the healthcare workforce, where we specifically commented that sentencing, um, uh, and this was a sentencing statement, so we focused on that, um, sentencing, sentencing Ms. Vaught would send an unambiguous message uh, to the healthcare community that anyone who makes an error, especially one that results in harm to patients, is, is at risk of criminal prosecution and incarceration, and that the fear of reprisal uh, for unintentional errors will undoubtedly lead our colleagues to withhold information that can actually make care much more safe. Uh, we also expressed our concern, um, and we've seen this in very common threads around this case, about folks not feeling comfortable working in the profession anymore, particularly given the already heightened state of what is happening. Uh, so, well, a criminal law and the purpose of criminal law is really around deterrence. Prosecution in this case doesn't necessarily deter mistakes. Uh, and that, again, was something that we wanted to emphasize, um, along with uh, the importance of open reporting, uh, analysis, and system changes that we want to encourage 
uh, in order to be able to advance safety. And one of the final things I'll say is that we were very clear that while accountability for safety is everyone's job, the ultimate accountability falls to leaders and governance bodies who have a duty to ensure that we have that proactive and very intentional purposeful design of systems and processes which ensure that the improvements and the monitoring around systems and individuals is, again, that constant work in progress of the organization. Thank you for that context, Patricia. And I want to note to our audience that the American Nurses Association also sent a letter to Judge Smith, and you will find a copy of that letter in your uh, related content folder for this webinar. Dr. Esplin, I'd like to move to you. Um, a pertinent fact in this case is that patient Charlene Murphy was 75 years old and a Medicare patient. It was very interesting that the uh, latest Office of Inspector General report was released in the same month that uh, uh, Redondavat was sentenced. So would you give us a high-level view of that OIG report and why it's pertinent for us to know when we're talking about this case? Absolutely. So this report, uh, as you mentioned, came out in early May. Um, and although it says it's 2018, this is incredibly relevant and contemporary, if not uh, shocking given that it was pre-pandemic. And so we're looking at 2018, this report, in contrast to the, the one a decade earlier in 2008. And luckily there is a slight uh, uh, in, increase um, in terms of patient safety, but it found that among the, uh, the um, <clears throat> a quarter of Medicaid patients experienced patient harm during their short-term acute stay. Um, and that rate had barely changed even after a decade. And so when it looks at harm, you know, this report is looking at all, at all kinds of harm. They don't have to always involve negligence or poor care, but medication errors or medication harm was 43%. 23% um, were related to patient care, 22% uh, stemmed from procedures or surgeries, and then 11% were due to infections. And of these, it, it highlighted preventable harm. So. Yes, we know that certain patients are more vulnerable to certain things and there are, things, there are certain actions that we take that are justified in terms of causal interventions that the patient may or may not have survived the, the state anyway. But when we're looking at preventable harm, there's, a, there's something that went wrong that we could have prevented. And so you would hope over that decade that we would have learned more or given that we can learn things that would have been implemented in this yeah. system to make us more safe. Thank you, and a copy for our audience to refer to more in depth is also in your related content folder. Dr. O'Neill, with your tremendous both legal and nursing background, I think you are uh, best suited to answer this question. We get this question a lot. As the result of the Redonda Vought case, should nurses now buy individual liability insurance? You wrote a terrific article for the American Nurse Journal, which our audience can reference also in the related content folder. But would you walk us through how you would answer this question? Uh, yes, uh, I think we first need to understand what uh, malpractice insurance actually 
covers your liability insurance covers for nurses. It covers your activities and uh, your role as a nurse, whether it is uh, working within a hospital, working in other healthcare settings, or working at home as a home health health nurse. So if you are acting in your role as a nurse, these policies will, will cover you. Uh, the policy is also runs parallel to any coverage that you may have through your own employer. So you have to understand that even though you have a policy, uh, generally uh, the rule of thumb is that the uh, hospital, whoever your employer is, policy is going to take uh, charge of any uh, case that's brought against you or brought against uh, the system itself. These policies do not cover you in criminal actions. So in this case, if uh, Ms. Vaught had, or if she does have a uh, policy, it would not cover her in any type of um, criminal process. Uh, it would cover her uh, in terms of the board itself, going in front of the board, but almost all of the policies that I've looked at when I was writing this article only uh, designate $25,000 as a cap. And in her case, I understand her the fees, legal fees, for her to go in front of the board for the board hearing was about $38,000. So um, in terms of whether you get the ins um, insurance, I think it generally has to do with, can you sleep at night? If, if you're concerned about your protection in terms of what happens to you in terms of your employment and your license, um, and you feel that you need the, the coverage and I would definitely recommend getting the coverage. Uh, if you happen to be working in multiple institutions, you're a traveling nurse or you are moonlighting in a hospital, as I suggested in the article, I think you should think about um, getting the policy. But you definitely need to know what it covers and, and what it does cover. And unfortunately, in this matter, uh, the criminal proceedings would not have been covered uh, by this type of policy. Was there any type of policy that would have covered her? Um, not to my knowledge, sometimes some homeowners uh, policies can cover these kinds of things, or if you have an excess liability uh, policy on your homeowners, uh, that might cover it. But uh, unfortunately, most policies do not cover this type of act, uh, activity. You have an excellent graphic in this article that I want to point out to our audience, just a list of why nurses get sued. And that was really enlightening to me. And uh, at the very top is medication errors or failure to follow orders. So it looks like there are numerous ways that we as practicing nurses with active licenses really need to be aware of and consider the many different ways we can be sued. It's not just one or two. Sure, and um, you just need to realize that um, these policies cover you in uh, the civil realm in terms of what happens in terms of boards and those other act, act, activities and if uh, a patient themselves or their family sues you, but they do not cover you if there's a criminal action brought against you. That makes sense. Dr. O'Neill, we already have a uh, important question from the audience and it's, does your employer's malpractice insurance cover you if you don't follow a written procedure? In other words, you do a override, which I'm sorry to say, um, Unfortunately, nurses have to override, especially medication systems all the time to get care done, or if you do a workaround. Generally, uh, the employer is responsible for your behavior, unless the employer um, has other information about your behavior, but in those, both of those cases, your employer will cover it. But even if you had your own policy, um, 
from a, a defense standpoint, I, I practice as a defense attorney. Um, when there's different parties being sued and there's different possible insurance coverage, usually the teams tend to, tend to work together uh, for the common good in terms of just um, making sure that the case gets resolved in a positive way. Less than the hospital wants is a case that goes against them that it could eventually go against you, particularly they have to pay out on their policies. You know, Patricia, we speak frequently in the science of safety, our pursuit of cultures of safety, that workarounds and shortcuts are real threats to patient safety. So given the nature of this particular question, could you comment on that? Yeah, that's this is a super important point um, related to this situation, but quite frankly, to virtually many, many things that go wrong in healthcare, uh, whether they result in harm or not. Every day in healthcare, uh, we are making choices um, and are operating in conditions where there's system frailties and there's normaliz normalization of deviance. We kind of keep drifting and drifting and drifting. Um, and that almost becomes what we think of as being the expected idealized practice. Um, but even with the best of intentions that we bring, because none of us goes to work intending to drift into, into the ultimate harm, but for several reasons, uh, you know, we see um, actions, inactions, choices and practice that does tend to drift. Um, and that is particularly true in complex and busy systems where there's heavy uh, burdens of work and production pressures that we face. Um, I liken the situation that this leads to, to the nursery rhyme, Rockabye Baby, uh, where we, if you listen to the words of that rhyme, we're actually tying a baby in a cradle to the top of a tree, and we're letting the wind do its work as it rocks and lulls the baby to sleep. Um, and in healthcare, um, the analogy is that we are oftentimes lulled into believing that everything is likewise fine in this process of drifting even though we are loading more and more stressors onto an already stressed system um, and the boughs of the tree of safety are incredibly um, you know, uh, at risk uh, for breaking. And everything does appear to be fine until it's actually not. The bow breaks, the ultimate harm occurs. And this is so very often what um, you know, um, provokes systems, unfortunately, into um, analyzing um, their current state of safety. Uh, but safety really depends on the collective vigilance of all of us across the organization to avoid being lulled into that false sense of security and thinking that because no bows have broken, everything is in fact safe, as I mentioned earlier. So it's the collective job of leaders and everyone in healthcare to be able to identify, prevent, and address the systems issues as well as the choices, the practices, um, and behaviors that lead to the bending and breaking of those boughs. We are the metaphorical arborist uh, for safety. And that includes focusing in on defects that are less visible, yet very real. Those are the issues that can erode the protective defense of systems and allow errors to reach the patient. They set the stage for um, very vulnerable conditions and they often emerge, um, as they did in this case, when we have um, lack of systems or poorly designed systems or processes or lack of procedures, weak supervision, unclear roles and responsibilities and communication breakdowns. And I think every category that I mentioned um, can be acknowledged 
um, in the publicly available information um, that uh, we are um, trying to learn and, and improve from. So it's the compounding of some of the latent conditions and then the very active failures that occur if someone doesn't read a label of a medication and doesn't, um, you know, just pause and, and check to be able to say, boy, you know, is there something here that doesn't look right? We have a much higher chance of preventing harm by addressing the opportunities in the systems proactively versus, again, expecting that humans um, will be perfect when, again, the only reality about humans with respect to perfection is that we are perfectly imperfect. <laughs> I want to emphasize what you said, though, which is so important in order to have safe systems, it's dual accountability. The practitioner or the staff have to be held accountable as well as the organization, and it takes both in order to create that safe system. Uh, Dr. O'Neill, there is a question in chat. Since you are a nurse practitioner, do you recommend an extra liability insurance policy as a nurse practitioner? Uh, as, a, as a nurse practitioner, I think it depends upon where you're working and what uh, liability coverage is being provided uh, under your employment. Um, uh, it, it's each individual, it's different, the type of patients that you're uh, following. I will say that if you're working with a younger population, anybody under the age of uh, uh, 18, you need to understand that uh, the statute of limitations is different because that person, when they reach an adult, can actually sue you for, for uh, three years once they reach adulthood if the parents haven't sued you or whoever the guardian is. So please understand that. But some of these high-risk areas, I think it definitely uh, makes sense uh, to uh, have your own policy. Thank you. Let's move on to the third objective. We wanna make sure that we talk about the systems as Patricia has teed those up. The uh, reality, when we look at how do we support the way humans work, how do we minimize the opportunity for error? In this particular case, we need to understand the four systems that were in place. The hospital, the US healthcare system, the justice system, and the information technology system. So Patricia, you just talked about breakdowns and workarounds. Can you talk about the hospital as a system for us to consider when we're, we're talking about this case? Happy to do so. Um, building upon some of my prior comments, uh, common to these stories that we are, are talking about today are uh, multiple systems issues that are almost always in place. Um, and given the slow progress and concerning setbacks in safety that were already mentioned uh, that have actually heightened during the pandemic, um, you know, we are really trying to catalyze organizations to address what we know to be really true, that we've got to be able to understand the um, defects and the opportunities within systems if we really want to be able to meaningfully improve and sustain safer care. Um, we have uh, convened a National Steering Committee for Patient Safety a couple of years ago, and uh, this committee, which is composed of 27 uh, leading organizations, including federal agencies from the United States, developed the first national action plan for patient safety in the United States. Um, this is uh, Safer Together, um, advancing uh, a national action plan to advance safety, and it's freely available 
on our website. Uh, what we have tried to do is we've learned from our history in safety um, is to call out those systems variables, um, the factors that are so central um, to uh, safety overall. And there are four key areas that we identified um, that are essential for focus and deemed essential for safe and reliable care. One is culture, leadership, and governance. Um, a second is patient and family engagement. A third is learning systems. And the fourth is uh, the well-being and safety of the workforce. Again, all of these domains uh, being relevant to so many of the um, harms that we see in healthcare. Um, and so the focus on this is to be able to have people move beyond what we have typically done when we think about safety. We've kind of tackled that from the perspective of discrete circumscribed quality improvement projects that typically look at a singular clinical challenge, let's just say healthcare-associated infections. Um, and that's really important work for us to do. Um, and there's typically, uh, you know, clinical bundles um, with clinical and technical considerations that we aim to um, implement to be able to improve care. But we haven't naturalized the systems bundles that are so relevant and necessary for safety. And the plan that I've referenced includes a blueprint with organizational assessment tools and tactics and recommendations and resources so that work can be done. I, I also wanna just add on in again for this particular case, but also common uh, to so many other cases is building upon um, how we frame and use some of the traditionally held tools to advance safety, um, including this notion of the fair and just culture that we talked about and the five rights of medication use. Now, these are frameworks that we often think about pulling out and we apply in the aftermath of when something has happened. We often look at, um, you know, our harms through this retrospective lens using these tools. And we also largely use them to guide and judge individuals. And we saw that um, in those circumstances. Mm -hmm. However, the principles of safe and reliable care suggest that the most important purpose that they serve is using those tools to proactively design um, the systems and the values and the expectations that we have um, that are essential for safety, architecting how things can go well in advance. So let's just take this five rights of medication use. I know we have a lot of our nursing colleagues that are listening to us today. We commonly apply those in the aftermath of harm, uh, once we've gotten through our, our academic period, to be able to figure out what the nurse did or didn't do correctly. However, if we were taking a systems approach and using that framework of the five rights of medication use, uh, we would be saying, how does the system get designed in order to support those. That is not a tool that is only intended to judge individuals, but a tool that I'd love to see us flip um, you know, our thinking on and say is something that we can actively use um, to, de to design systems um, that support safety. Um, and, and when we think about it from this standpoint, we saw, for example, that only two letters, the two letters of Versed, um, which by the way, that, that brand name has not been in use for nearly two decades, but it's so common in the conversations that we have. We think about Versed a lot. We may not think about midazolam, and that is exactly what happened in this case here, but requiring only two letters, a V and an E, 
And the first medication that pops up in this um, automatic dispensing uh, cabinet patient profile is vecuronium, the um, drug that was inadvertently given uh, to Ms. Murphy in her care. Uh, we also see this with the barcode medication scanning uh, where that technology was not available in the radiology area where um, the medication was administered to Ms. Murphy, nor was there access to an electronic health record um, system where the medication could actually be documented. And so if we're thinking about, again, these systems opportunities um, and, and the, the constant balance between individual and system accountability, this gives us a great uh, platform to be able to say, let's really think about these tools that exist and how we use them in a different way. So you emphasize the hospital as a system and all of the, the issues that can occur Dr. O'Neill, can you expand on the implications of the U.S. healthcare system as a global system? When we were preparing for this webinar, you were noting how different uh, laws are state by state. We don't have one universal healthcare system. Inform our audience about why that's also pertinent to this case. <clears throat> it's pertinent to this case because of what could actually be, uh, charges could actually be brought uh, against the nurse and how, how each state uh, handles these types of incidences. Um, in this case, uh, the uh, state's attorney for that county decided to bring charges. But I do want to point out, this case actually went to a grand jury. So it wasn't, the, I want people to, to realize that the case with all the facts went to a grand jury and the grand jury issued the indict, indictment. Um, so it wasn't, I know that a lot of people think that the, uh, State's attorney was probably had a political agenda here. That may be true. That may be part of it. But I'm just going to say that the case would never have gone forward if it had the facts hadn't been presented to the um, the, the grand jury that way. Um, in terms of the healthcare system, every system is different. Um, in terms of what checks and balances are within the system, we're only as, as good as what's what's provided. And so, if you work in some of these smaller hospitals, you're probably at a greater risk for um, errors because the safety systems um, aren't in place. Um, in this case, for example, she was actually given five warnings um, by the system um, that there was issues with, with this medication, which according to the documents uh, were ignored. And what Vanderbilt has done since then is they've actually, because it was a paralytic agent, in order for a nurse to get a paralytic agent out of the device, the nurse now has to write the letters para, P-A-R-A, in order to actually get the medication to help um, deal with that. Additionally, um, I, I, another system problem, which I think was identified with in this, is that she was using a, tra a former trade name, which a lot of people use, Vera said that was mentioned. Uh, um, but the system didn't bring up the drug, meaning she couldn't find the drug, but the, uh, I probably the system should also identify drugs by by trade names and also by generic names. So if the system, if she put Verisid in, it, it should have told her that uh, that's midazolam and then she may have actually gotten uh, the correct uh, drug. Um, in terms of the uh, justice system, again, that's different in every every state. They, they generally follow similar rules, but in terms of what's required for indictment, how the, um, the judge can handle the case, in this case, the judge did have some have some leeway in sentencing, but in some states, 
in these types of cases, they have to actually go by guidelines, and the guidelines uh, could force you as a nurse to go to prison because the, the way the guidelines were are set up, it might say three to five years. In this case, she was able to um, put uh, the nurse on um, probation for uh, three years. So those are really important facts to know, um, the state-by-state -state variation. Dr. Esplin, could you comment on um, behavior when we were preparing for this webinar, you made a very important point around the role of intent and how behavior, uh, whether it's reckless or human error, how that's viewed by the justice system. I know how it's viewed in healthcare, in a just culture, but how is behavior viewed in the justice system? Sure, so when we think about behavior, we're thinking about multiple things, but also first and foremost, the act. So Ms. Vaught never denied that she administered this particular medication that was an error. She actually did the act of administration. So there we have the act, but what was the intent? Because in criminal law, you have to have some kind of intent, so whether it is to actually harm that patient, or in this case, when we're looking at negligence or recklessness, um, was there an intentional disregard for a substantial or unjustifiable risk. And so that is that is very complicated because you have a system that only thinks mutually exclusively in guilty or not guilty. And so she pled not guilty given all of the cascade of factors and the situation in which she found herself because she didn't intend to do harm. And so when we look around normalized deviance, it's, it tends to be that people are just trying to get their job done and they're doing the best they can. And so when the justice system flips and makes you deviant for this kind of normalized deviance, I, I do think that we might need to rethink what justice looks like in terms of protecting the public and then punishing bad actors. What does, what does a safer public look like, you know, with a criminal charge like this? And then what kind of punishment is just? Well said, thank you. Um, the information technology system, and Patricia mentioned the technology in this case, for instance, the lack of barcoding and the lack of the electronic health record in radiology, as well as the construct of the medication dispensing units. So there's no doubt that the information technology system also had a role in this entire uh, case. Dr. Simpson was going to be talking about that with us, and he has been unable to join us due to technical issues. Um, but our current panel is doing a great job helping us understand there are actually four systems in this case. And the variation across the United States, uh, much less the variation in information technology in hospitals, should be a, a real focus area for leaders. I want to move to solutions. Uh, the definition of a solution is a means of solving a problem or dealing with a difficult situation, which this one certainly was. So where do we go from here? Uh, what do we learn from this case? How do we look at our organizations to make sure that the vulnerabilities that created this scenario don't exist in our particular organizations? So Patricia, when you're thinking of solutions, what do you say? 
So uh, this is such an important point because I know for many of us who perhaps were not watching this case five years ago or may have, and then we went into this big uh, constellation of distractions related to and delays related to the pandemic. Um, what we have, you know, really saw this this spring was the emotion um, and the disbelief um, in our understandably in healthcare um, that something like this could actually happen. And so I think where we go for solutions from here, number one for me is being able to uh, move beyond that emotion, um, not to lose sight of that emotion and passion, but to be able to uh, create action um, and, and think about the lessons that we've learned and we've shared some examples today for how we can, again, intentionally address and design systems of safety. Um, and, and most importantly, um, you know, we know that harm happens, unfortunately, every day in healthcare. Um, our focus has got to be on supporting the patients and families. It has also got to be on supporting um, the workforce who, um, you know, the vast majority of time has absolutely no intention of harming um, a patient um, as a result of doing their work. Um, so as I talked about the solutions, being able to identify and assess where we're at from a systems perspective, um, where we're at with our um, values and how we perceive and understand and operationalize concepts um, such as fair and just culture in our systems and how we think about the collective engagement of the community uh, to be able to advance uh, safety. This is a leadership issue, flat out. Um, we all have responsibilities, but for leaders and governance bodies to be able to reflect and say, what what could happen in my organization, and how do we how do we understand particularly some of these uh, systems risks that are inherent? We've got an example of a hospital um, that I'll just share that decided um, separate from this case, but to be able to look at why were people not using barcode medication administration? So they really tried to understand not just whether it was being used or not, but what are the reasons why it was not being used consistently within and across everyone who had access to it, and then was able to pull together plans uh, to be able to um, address um, those systems issues um, and the individual issues that were arising. Someone uh, dropped in a question that I also want to comment on from a solutions perspective. They, I think it was associated with um, the workforce shortages. And I'd like to just reflect on that as well too, and also build out that our workforce is, is radically evolving right now in terms of its composition. And this is not just an issue of external travelers. This is um, also, we've got per diems and temporary staff from internal agencies. We've got floaters. Um, and we also have a workforce that has less tenure um, over time. We recently uh, did a little bit of a drill down on what this meant through the lens of patient and workforce safety. And we identified very clear gaps and incredible variation in ownership and accountability for orientation, onboarding, and practices for safety across the hospitals and the healthcare systems, the internal and external agencies that place our colleagues in healthcare, not just nursing, by the way, but across all different roles in healthcare, and also with what individuals are doing as they um, come to work. So it's time for us to really figure out how we are going to set standards for minimum um, expectations 
in that realm, as well as how we think about how to reduce the waste work that's involved that is consuming so much of our time at the bedside um, and that is very often distracting us from the focus of our care um, overall. So I'll let others jump on in and round out some of these solutions, Lily. Thank you. So, Dr. O'Neill, um, from your standpoint, uh, we only have about seven minutes left in the webinar, so I want to get solutions from you and Dr. Esplin and then take on some more questions from the audience. Well, I guess my solution is you're your best protection. And, you know, when we, people go to the OR now, they stop the procedure, they do a timeout, and they actually talk about the patient, who the patient is. And I think that in terms of administering medications, particularly this type of medication, even if she thought she was giving Barisad, you, you need to think about what it is you're giving and what are the consequences of, of what you're given. Secondly, I do want to make it clear that she was brought in for an investigation, but she did not understand that it was a criminal investigation. So she relinquished her right to attorney. She was read her rights, and she made she gave information and answered questions, which the response could have been completely different if she'd had an attorney present, and it may have changed the defense in the case and how the attorney uh, uh, approached it. Once she made those statements, the, the attorney could not put her on, on the stand because she, uh, her statements were going to be used against her no matter what she said. So I, I think people need to be uh, clear about that. And lastly, even though she left Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt should have been a part of uh, helping her address this issue because even when you leave an institution, it's to their benefit for you to have a positive out outcome, even in a, in a criminal matter. And so I'm, I, I'm not sure what Vanderbilt's role was in terms of the defense, whether they paid for it, who paid for it. I think that that, that should be looked at, and that should be the, the role of the institution in terms of um, defending its nurses. Important distinction. And I don't know um, the Vanderbilt side. All we're talking about in this webinar is what is stated in the public domain. Right. Dr. Esplin. To reiterate some of the points that these uh, my colleagues have made, this focus on really what is going to make us safer. And so is it to punish uh, someone like Ms. Vaught who is finds themselves in this circumstance? Because the standard often is, did a person similarly situated in all material aspects make an unjustifiable or reckless choice to disregard a risk? And so there's a cultivation of a appreciation of the circumstances there that I think needs to be, as we said, not ashamed one another or feel ashamed that we can't uh, be honest or transparent, but really stand together and help educate the public. And then also from a, a different perspective, just for pub the public to think, what is really going to make us safer? Is it isolating or continuing to perpetuate this legal fiction that there's one bad actor here and if we punish or incarcerate them that everything will be safer? Or can we just sort of be honest with each other and think about it in terms of an overwhelmed, overworked, but dedicated workforce? So important. And I'll uh, add with Dr. Simpson, I know one of his solution points is working with uh, information technology companies and software developers and making sure that they understand how their particular product can either contribute or uh, contribute to a positive environment and a positive experience or how they can actually really put the burden of the issues with that particular product or software 
on that front line, like I said at the beginning, nurses are on the front line at the sharp edge and therefore most vulnerable to any of the uh, issues that occur with no matter what the technology is. We're almost at the end of time for our webinar with you today, and I wanna to get to as many questions as I can. While we're answering questions, we'd love your feedback about the, today's content and focus. So if you'll click on the QR code or click on that SurveyMonkey link and give us your feedback, we would really appreciate it. And a reminder that you can access this webinar on demand in the future and look for an email link from us so that you can uh, review it again or perhaps share it with colleagues. So we have um, a couple of questions here. Um, Dr. O'Neill, what is the possibility of the organization openly supporting an individual held accountable for a systemic issue? What is the rationale for not speaking out in support of an accused nurse? Now, I know we're not opinion-based here. We're only uh, yeah, uh, on I, the um, back. Yeah, I think um, if the institution has already settled the case, which is what happened in this case, uh, the institution may make, make decisions um, not to do it for, for reasons which we don't have, we have no control over. Um, whether or not that was right or wrong in this case, that's not that's not the discussion of this this forum, but um, I think it's probably concerning to a lot of uh, people uh, listening to this webinar tonight. For sure. Here's a, here's a good question. Um, when we were talking about there was no intention to harm a patient in this case, as Dr. Esplin mentioned, but where does intent of not following best practice or not following the protocol and procedures for medication administration? We'd like to take that one. I can speak a little bit more to it in terms of do you know the do you know the policy? Have you been properly educated? And then if so, did you make this choice knowing that there was a substantial and unjustifiable risk because you made this choice? So again, looking at the role of intention, looking at do you feel comfortable or empowered if you find yourself in the situation to not do that act, not go forward, um, sort of stop the line? versus taking that risk and hoping it doesn't uh, translate or, or cause harm. Uh, and I think that's important to think about what is intention versus, you know, you know the policy and, and yet you are reckless or you are negligent and there, there you may, you should be held accountable. So just trying to get the job done. Yeah. We've got about 30 may seconds. I, could I just add in that in some cases, the policies, um, as we learned from the um, corrective action plan, um, in this case, after the CMS investigation um, occurred uh, at the facility, some cases, the policies were not clearly defining some of the roles and responsibilities for the help all nurse or for monitoring of patients who are receiving sedatives and other things. So, so I, this is a great opportunity to say, let's think about from a systems perspective, what do the policies actually state? How can they be interpreted? And then how do we ensure that we have alignment between what people People do and and what we hope they will do as written in a policy. Thank you. Thank you. I wish we had much more time to talk about these very important issues on behalf of the panel and on behalf of all of us at the American Nurse Journal. Thank you for joining us today. Goodbye. <laughs>